I guess I can use this, huh? Good morning, everyone. Good to see you on this beautiful Sunday morning. In a little bit of rain, I wish we could send it our way out in Arizona. Don't think that's going to happen. Uh, just before we get back into the book of Ruth, and we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, I have a little book here by Dr. Chuck Missler called The Romance of Redemption. Um, if you want to look at this, you can do it. You can actually order it from their publishing house, which is Koinonia House, or you can get it on Amazon if you shop there. Uh, there's a lot of information in this book that I haven't had time to cover. Uh, believe it or not, as small a, a book as it is, there's a tremendous amount of information in it. And Chuck Missler is one of those detailed guys that is really good at... Uh, sort of digging out information that you don't find in other places, so. Sorry? Yeah, well, he's really good. Uh, so anyway, uh, I encourage you to maybe look that up if you're interested. Uh, we're going to get back into the book at chapter three. Um, so if you want to open your Bibles there and we'll have a word of prayer and we'll get back into the story. So let's pray together. Let's ask God's blessing on our time together. Father in heaven, just like Ruth, we come to you in great need. We are incapable of doing anything for our own salvation. We have no strength within ourselves to live the Christian life. How we thank you for the full and free salvation that we find through faith in Jesus Christ and how glad we are that at that moment, God, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within that newly created new man that Paul talks about. By his power, uh, we are able to live in a way that pleases you. And we pray that our time together this morning will reinforce things that we know, possibly bring to us things that we may not have seen before and strengthen us in the time in which we live, which is a very dark and difficult time. Yet, Father, we have been called to shine as lights in a dark place. So help us to fulfill the purpose for which you have placed us uh, on this planet, in this place, here and now, to be a light, to be a witness, to be an evidence of your love, your care, and your grace and of the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ for the world. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you want a real quick sort of outline for the book of Ruth, in chapter 1, we see Ruth sorrowing. Uh, 
uh, along with Naomi, she's lost her husband. We've talked about all of the elements that went into the loss of the three men, but the story is really built around Ruth, and so Ruth is sorrowing, and yet she has that first spark of light, and that is when she chooses to call the God of Israel her God. She has come to faith through her anguish and through her suffering, and I would venture to say probably most of us in this room who have come to faith in Christ probably came to faith in Christ through some kind of trial or difficulty or adversity in our life. So Ruth sorrowing in chapter one, she comes to faith. And then in chapter two, we find her doing what we all should do once we come to faith in Christ, and that is Ruth serving. She's serving by gleaning. She's going out into the field. She's following behind the reapers to glean the grain for her and Naomi to be able to survive. And each and every one of us needs to realize that there are people around us who have less than we have, not just physically, not just financially, uh, maybe intellectually, maybe uh, in the way of health. There are people around us in need. Every one of us should be reaching out in a way of serving those who are around us. Uh, we bypass opportunities every day to accomplish something for eternity. Remember that not only do our actions witness for the Lord Jesus Christ without words, but our actions also are going to be rewarded when they're done by faith, when they're done in fellowship with the Lord. The scriptures assure us that he is going to render to each one of us according to our deeds. And you'll remember that even Boaz said to Ruth, may the Lord reward you for the good that you have done to Naomi. There are eternal rewards that you and I have the opportunity of laying up on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. And we do that by serving others. In chapter 3, we come to Ruth seeking. She is now coming close to that union with Boaz that is a picture of the union of the believer with Jesus Christ. The reason that the book is called The Romance of Redemption, and I think that, coin, that uh, phrase was first coined by J. Vernon McGee, is because not only is the book of Ruth a history, it's a love story, it's also a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the relationship of the church to Christ. Elimelech, Naomi represent Israel outside the land. And whenever Israel is outside the land, they are bereft of the blessings of God. But because of Israel being scattered, you and I have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Ruth, we came to know about him because of the Jewish scriptures. And whenever we look at the scriptures, we realize that we are receiving the witness of Jewish believers, Luke being the only author of the Bible who was not Jewish, at least as far as we know. And so we receive that witness. We come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like Ruth did. And we begin serving. And what are we serving for? Well, if you read through the book of Romans, particularly when you get to Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about how the faith of the Gentiles will ultimately work to bring the Jewish people back to an understanding of who their Messiah is and faith in him. So the whole story of Ruth as it plays out is actually anticipating 
the role of the Gentile church in bringing the nation of Israel back to their rightful relationship with the Lord. So Ruth is seeking in chapter 3, we're going to see that as we get into it. And then in chapter 4, we see Ruth secure. We see her security as she becomes the wife of Boaz, and we see that she is entered into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a fascinating and amazing study, and we could have actually, believe it or not, spent the entire time that we've been together on just the lineage at the end of the book of Ruth, and it tells us something very, very special about the people in that day, and that'll come out in our session next hour. So let's get into Ruth chapter 3, and you remember that Ruth has been gleaning in the field. You remember that Boaz has made several overtures to her. He has offered her protection. He has offered her provision. Uh, he has been very benevolent to her, and the important thing to understand is that he has gone as far as he can go to initiate grace and compassion and provision for her. Now it's up to her. It's kind of like what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has done everything that he can to provide for us the gift of eternal life and the security of knowing that we are children of God, members of the family of God. Then it depends on our willingness to receive those overtures of grace, that kindness that he shows to us, the wooing of the Holy Spirit, and all of those things wait on us to respond and to seek the provision that he's made. And so this is where we find Ruth this morning. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Uh, remember that I mentioned earlier, but I'll point out for those that weren't with us, the word security is the word rest. In chapter 1, Naomi urged Orpah and Ruth to go back to their family, to go back and find husbands, and she said that you may find rest. Rest is a key word in the book of Ruth. And rest, of course, is a key word in relationship to our salvation. Jesus invites the world to come to him, and he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's not just talking about relaxation. He's not just talking about sleep or physical refreshment. He's using the term rest as an all-encompassing term for the salvation that he provides for us. It's a rest for our soul. Shall I not seek rest for you. I might just stop long enough to remind us this is the book of Ruth following the book of Judges, the book of Judges following the book of Joshua. Joshua is when they went in and conquered the land and remembered the word that God used for the promised land. It was not just a promised land. It was not just a land of milk and honey. It was the place where he would give them rest. The rest that comes from God's provision. So shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, Naomi knows the laws of Israel. Ruth doesn't. So Naomi is going to have to coach her a little bit on what she needs to do. She says, now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Again, the word relative is Goel. Goel refers to the kinsman redeemer. 
And the kinsman redeemer was the one that had the right to redeem land that was lost by a relative. And also the kinsman redeemer was the one who had the right to claim uh, a widow of a brother as his bride. So Boaz is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. I want to just pause long enough to point out three things a kinsman redeemer had to be able to do. Number one, he had to be a close relative. Number two, he had to be able to redeem either the land or the widow. And number three, he had to be willing to redeem the land or the widow. Three pictures of what Christ has done for us. But there's one thing that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, could not do. He could not force himself on the widow. It had to be her choice. God always made it volitional, just like he makes our salvation volitional. We have to choose to come to him. And that's why oftentimes in passages like John chapter 1 and verse 12, we see the word receive. As many as received him, to them he gave the authority or the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And in that verse, the word receive and believe are used interchangeably because they really describe each other. When we believe, we are receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's a personal decision on our part. So she says, Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Uh, Nan and I have seen this kind of threshing going on in India. They would usually find a high place and they would wait until there was a time when the wind was blowing and they would bring the grain in and they would put the grain on a flattened threshing floor. Uh, in India, they'll have oxen that will walk around and around and around on the grain and it beats the grain and the chaff apart. And then the women will come in with baskets and they'll scoop it up and they'll throw it up in the air. And of course, the chaff blows away, being very light. The grain falls to the ground and they begin getting heaps of grain. And then they scoop up the grain and they'll take it to a safe place and they'll begin piling the grain. And depending on how big the field is, how much grain there is, these piles of grain just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So Boaz is winnowing and threshing at the threshing floor. She says... Therefore, in verse three, wash yourself, anoint yourself and put on your best garment. Three things that Christ does for us. He washes us with the washing of redemption. Paul talks, you remember in Ephesians 5, 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, the word of God washes our souls. Titus reminds us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration. So there is that cleansing that takes place at the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. So wash yourself and anoint yourself. Well, we also have an anointing, don't we? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, 22 reminds us that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Not only does he anoint us, but he seals us for the purpose of security forever and ever. So the anointing and the uh, work of the Holy Spirit coming on us to seal us, put on your best garment, 
Uh, we would relate this, of course, to the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness, we're told in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. And Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, if you believe, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we have the washing, we have the anointing, we have the clothing being robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to meet your Savior when he comes? Well, according to this, you are. According to the passages we've shared, you are, at least positionally. Now the question is, what about practically? How are we doing practically on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis? The scriptures tell us that we should live in such a way that when he appears and we see him, we will see him as he is, but we should live in such a way, John tells us in 1 John 2, 28, so that we will rejoice in his coming and not be ashamed at his appearing. We may have secure salvation, but are we living in fellowship with God? Are we living in a productive way in the Christian life? That's the question that comes into play. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4 says, Then it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Again, Naomi, who knows the laws, is coaching Ruth concerning the law of Leveret marriage. This law is given to us in, Deuteron- in uh, Leviticus chapter 25, And Deuteronomy chapter 25, in those two chapters, we have the laws of redeeming land and the laws of redeeming the widow. And so Naomi is instructing Ruth how she is to go about it because she has to show her desire. In other words, what's about to happen here is she's going to make her proposal to Boaz. It seems very strange to us, but the reason it was done this way is because, as I said, he could not force himself on her. God made it the widow's choice, the widow's right to choose whether she would come under the care of this individual or not. And obviously with the time that she's had, she came at the beginning of barley harvest. She's been there through barley harvest and wheat harvest. Every day she's eating lunch with Boaz who comes out uh, to join his workers. Uh, Every day he's showing her the kindness and the compassion and the care that we've already seen in chapter two. There's obviously been some connection uh, that's taken place between the two of them. Uh, It's not like it's an all of a sudden thing. Why would she lay down at his feet? You might remember that we quoted a couple of passages yesterday. Uh, Psalm 91 verse 1 is one of them. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In chapter 2, Boaz commended Ruth because she had taken refuge under the wings of the Almighty. This is a picture of God putting his protective care around us. Jesus used the very same picture in Matthew 23, verse 37, when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In other words, I wanted to shelter you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to provide you. What she's doing is acting out from a physical point of view what happens spiritually when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he places us under the shelter of his wings. She's going to uncover the hem of his garment and lay the hem of his garment over her. We have to understand that the hem of the garment in the ancient world was very important. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll remember when he was crucified, had a robe that his mother had made for him without seam. And that's why, though they divided the, the soldiers that were gambling for his garments at the foot of the cross, did not want to tear that robe. Every mother would make a robe for her son when he became a man and went out on his own. And that robe was a very precious and priceless possession. And oftentimes around the hem of the garment, you remember Jesus rebuking the Pharisees because he said, you broaden the hems of your garments. The hem of the garment often had an insignia. We would call it a coat of arms. And oftentimes when an agreement was made, they would take a clay tablet and the man would take the hem of his garment and press it into the clay because that was like his signature. It was like the signet ring that the rich and powerful and wealthy would use. So everyone had some kind of identifying mark or uh, embroidery on the hem of their garment, and it represented their position socially, it represented their power as far as authority was concerned, and it represented their wealth. For women, it was a little bit different in the ancient world. The women showed their position, their status, and their wealth by sowing the coins that they were given in what we often call the dowry, but it was the bride price. They would sew those coins into their garments. So if a woman had a shawl, she might have coins sewn all around the shawl, and that leads into the story of the woman in Luke chapter 15 who had 10 coins, but she lost one. And she was desperate to find that one. Why? Because that was part of her bride price. That was like her wedding ring, something very, very important to her. And you might ask the question, isn't this a little inappropriate for Ruth to go sneaking onto the threshing floor with Boaz sleeping there and uncovering his garment and laying down at his feet. Well, you need to understand that when the time of threshing took place, it was like a big party. All of the workers are there. They would work all day and in the evening they would have a big meal. They would feast together, they would celebrate. The host, who would be Boaz, would provide a lot of food for all the people and they would have a big feast. And then, we're in the time of Judges, remember, they have to protect their grain because we know the Midianites kept coming down and robbing their grain. They would sleep armed at the threshing floor. She's not coming to a threshing floor with one guy sleeping on a pile of grain. She's coming to a threshing floor with possibly as many as 20, 30 other people. And you'll see that there is a little hint of it as we get a little further along. There are plenty of people there. Uh, very, very appropriate. So when he lies down, verse four says, notice the place where he lies. You should go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5, we see Ruth's obedience. She's a very humble uh, and a very obedient person. And she says, all that you say to me, I will do. Coming from Moab, this would seem very strange to her. Moab did not have any customs like this at all. 
because in the surrounding nations, there were no provisions for widows and orphans. You remember what James tells us? And James being a very Jewish, early Christian believer, uh, in the book of James, we see much of the ancient Jewish thinking coming through. And he tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 27, true and undefiled religion is what? To care for the widows and the orphans. That was a very, very important part of the whole Mosaic law. And of course, it comes into play here. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and she did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Verse 7, after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Boaz has had a good feast. Boaz has had a little wine. Uh, a lot of people say they only drank grape juice in those days, but you have to remember that we're talking now about summer. We're in summertime. The barley harvest began in March or early April. Barley harvest led into wheat harvest. Wheat harvest leads us into summertime. Grapes are harvested in the fall. Try keeping grape juice from fall to summer. It's not going to work. Uh, you have to ferment it. But one of the beautiful things about Boaz here, he eats and drinks enough to be cheerful and he stops. You know, we could all learn some lessons from Boaz. Uh, Self-control is a valuable thing. Self-control is so important that when we read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, how does it end? You remember the nine things that he mentions? Not nine fruits, but one fruit, and it ends with what? Self-control. How important is self-control in everything that we do, in our thinking, in our speaking, in our actions, in our eating, in our drinking, in all that we do. Self-control is very important. When Peter talks in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 about spiritual growth, you remember how he says, having done all these things, add to your faith virtue. Virtue means divine strength. I take that to be the filling of the Holy Spirit. Add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. We're doing that right now, studying the word of God and to knowledge what? Self-control. In other words, what I hear from God's word, what I read from God's word should affect how I conduct myself. Okay. So Boaz lays down and she came, comes softly and she uncovers his feet. It happened at midnight. The man was startled. I don't know about you, but if I rolled over in the middle of the night and felt someone at my feet, I would probably be startled too. Maybe a little more than startled. The man was startled and he turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet. Now I've got a feeling Boaz probably had a pretty good idea who this was, but he says in verse nine, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant, Take your maidservant under your wing. Once again, we have that picture, that illustration that we see in Psalm 91.1 and in Matthew 23.37. Take me under your wing, for you are a close relative. You are a goel. You are a kinsman redeemer. Take me under your wing. Whether we know it or not, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is exactly what we're doing. We are coming under his wing, under the wing of his provision, under the wing of his protection. We are coming under his never-ending love. And Boaz, in this story, is such a beautiful picture 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name means in him is strength. And you remember when he appears on the scene at the beginning of chapter 2, the author of the book even makes it a little bit dramatic as if a play is going on and the curtains fly back and he says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And that's the sixth time Bethlehem is mentioned in the book. And as I said yesterday, Bethlehem is mentioned seven times. He who is strength comes from Bethlehem. Picture, of course, looking forward about 1,300 years to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you, he said, and she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Now, my daughter is a term of endearment. A lot of people get confused when they read the Song of Solomon because you have Solomon and the uh, woman uh, that he is courting, and he calls her my sister. And people say that's kind of weird, but among the Hebrews, that was actually a term of endearment, uh, a term of expressing great love and affection. So my daughter is a term of endearment, and yet it's just a little bit removed to show a certain amount of respect and so forth. Propriety, maybe I should say. Now my, my daughter, uh, he says, you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, the beginning being the kindness that she showed to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now he is saying, your proposal to me is an act of kindness. In other words, I can't believe that, you know, it's kind of like a young guy that finally convinces a girl that he's the right one for her and he's going, I can't believe she actually fell for me. Notice that he says, you've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning. Why? In that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. What do I take from this? Number one, I take that she is probably quite a bit younger than him. Uh, Ruth, probably somewhere in the area of 20 to 25 years old. I would expect that Boaz holding the position that he does, probably 40, 45 years old probably quite a bit of age difference. Second thing I take from it, she could have had anybody she wanted. She apparently was a very, very attractive woman. Not only was she very attractive, but he's already said to her, all of my people know that you are a virtuous woman. What does Proverbs 31 tell us about virtuous women? A virtuous woman is, her price is far above rubies. We say, uh, you're, you know, I'll say to my wife, you're, you're worth your weight in gold. I'd no longer tell her you're one in a million because there are now, what, eight billion people on the earth. So one in a million is not all that special. So that means there are, you know, a few hundred thousand others like you out there. You don't want to say that one. She could have gone after young men, poor or rich. Uh, it's a way that we could say you could have had anyone you wanted. Verse 11, not only is Boaz a mighty man. Remember the word that was used of him in chapter two is that he was a valiant hero. Uh, he was a warrior. Uh, he was a respected man in his community. He was wealthy. He was powerful. He had so many things. And yet, 
He's amazed that this young woman has made this proposal. But not only did he have all those traits, he had something else that's very important, especially for us men, he had integrity. He had integrity. Why is it? Because he knew that there was someone else who had the right before him. And he is not going to violate God's word no matter how much he wants to. You know, we play games with God and we read his word and we know where the lines are drawn and we know where the parameters are fixed. And yet we step over all the time. Boaz was a man who loved God so much he would not violate the slightest command of God's word uh, as long as he uh, knew and understood where that line was. So do not fear, he says in verse 11. I will do for you all that you request. Again, I want to emphasize this was volitional. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. The Eshet Chayil man has the book back there that she's written on Proverbs 31. If you're interested, uh, you can take that. Verse 12 says, it is true that I am a close relative. I am a Goel. However, there is a relative closer than I. Uh, here his integrity comes through. Stay this night, and in the morning it will be that if he will perform the duty of a close relic for you, then good, let him do it. In other words, let's let God direct how this works out. Let's trust him to work it out the way he wants. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, again, because it was volitional on all sides, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. In other words, just let's wait and see what God does. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize. In other words, in other words, it's still dark. And he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Who's he talking to? Don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's talking to all the other people. Can you imagine all the other people, all his workers, all his servants, all the field hands, they're all there. They're watching this whole thing take place and they're probably whispering to each other. I knew it was going to happen. I could tell the way he was taking care of her in the field and the way they looked at each other. And now it's all. He says to everybody, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Why? Well, number one, he's protecting her reputation, but I think there's a bigger reason. He doesn't want word to get to the older brother. Let's keep him in the dark. Let's not let him know yet what's going on. Verse 15, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Now, the argument about six ephahs, uh, Chuck Missler says that an ephah is nine gallons. So if an ephah is nine gallons and you measure six ephahs into a shawl, how much have you got? You got 54 gallons of barley. Uh, I don't know where he got his information. I'm sure he was not a farmer uh, from some of the things that he says. Uh, others say that the ephah was a quart. I could see that. But the important thing to you and I is why six? He measures six ephahs. She goes into the city. When she comes to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law says, is it you, my daughter? By the way, there's a little, there's a little um, thought behind the question, if I can put it that way. Naomi knows Ruth, right? Uh, it's not like, is that you? She knows who she is. 
what is she really asking? Are you still the same you that left? Are you the single you that left without a husband or are you the you that now returns with a husband? Ruth says, told her all that the man had done for her and she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. Why the emphasis twice here on the six ephahs? Boaz, I believe, has sent a message to Naomi, a message she would understand. We know that in Jewish thinking and all through the scriptures, the number seven is so important. The seventh day is the Sabbath, the seven feasts that they had every year, the seven sevens that made up the year of Jubilee and even the Feast of First Fruits. And there are 70 sevens that are woven into the laws of the nation of Israel. Seven comes up over and over and over again. And seven is the number of God's fulfilled work and our rest, right? That's what the Sabbath illustrated. Let's rest because God has provided all that we need. And so he sends six Ephes, and Naomi, being a very shrewd Jewish woman, looks at six Ephes and says, Aha, I know what this message says. So notice what she says next, verse 18. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest. We rest, he doesn't. The big picture here is Christ does all the work. We rest in his finished work. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant that everything necessary for our salvation, our blessing, and our security was done. Like Ruth, we come under the hem of his garment, under the symbol of his authority and the symbol of his power. We rest in the shadow of his wings and all is done. But here, the man will not rest until he's concluded the matter this day. And we're gonna see in our next session how it's concluded. But I would like to give you five points if you're taking down any notes. I would like to give you five points on spiritual rest. It's a very important, very prominent topic in the scripture. The first one is true rest of soul is only found in God's presence. True rest of soul is only found in God's presence. Exodus 33, 14 says, this is God speaking, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. I mentioned earlier that was almost a code word for the promised land. A place of rest, a place of refreshment, a place of fulfillment. True rest of soul is only found in God's presence. Secondly, rest cannot be found in escape from our troubles. We like to run from our problems, try to evade our difficulties, and we think if I can just get out of this situation, I'll have rest. <clears throat> David thought the same thing in Psalm 55 and verse 6. And I said, oh, that I had the wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Well, you can't run from your problems because when you run from your problems, your problems generally relate to you and you go with you. You can't escape from yourself. So you cannot run 
from your troubles and find rest. Third, spiritual rest is impossible to those who will not believe. Spiritual rest is impossible to those who will not believe. Isaiah 30 and verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. Same thing Jesus said to Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37. I would have gathered you under my wings, but you were not willing. So spiritual rest is impossible without faith. For rest for the soul is found when we trust in God. Rest for our soul is found, not just in our salvation, but today. What, what burden, what problem, what difficulty is weighing on you today? You will not find rest until you take that burden and lay it on him and rest in his provision. Hebrews 4 verse 1 and 3 says, Therefore let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We should fear not living in rest. But then he goes on to say, For we who have believed do enter that rest. We enter that rest when we believe, whether we're talking about at the moment of our salvation, whether we're talking about dealing with problems and difficulties in life, and when we choose to lay those burdens on the Lord, that's when we begin to rest. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ stands with his arms outstretched to the world to find rest in him. The Lord Jesus Christ stands with his arms outstretched to the world to find rest in him. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, you're familiar with. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The greatest lack in the world today, the greatest need of mankind in the world today, the greatest need that you and I face on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and level is true, genuine, spiritual rest. We need it, we crave it, but somehow we miss it because it's almost too simple. Go in and lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to put his robe the hem of his garment over you, cast your cares on him and rest. Father, we are thankful for this marvelous book and all the great lessons that we've learned out of it. Bless what we've seen this morning. Bless our next session. Draw in those who are hungering for your word. Prepare us and equip us to receive it as you bring it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.